Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. True confession, earlier this year we had a friend give Nikki and I a piece of artwork with Romans 12, 12 on it. It has been kind of our theme verse for uh, this year, which has been filled with so many of your trials and then my own. Uh, So I figured appropriate to preach on that today. We're going to start in verse 1 with the reading, though, so you get a little bit of context before we get to verse 12, which is the only verse I'm preaching on. This is God's Word, I would remind you. This is Him speaking to you in a slightly southern accent from this pulpit. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here's our verse. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray yet again. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would give light and light, life and light to our hearts. For your word is perfect, we pray in Christ's name, amen. It's a strange thing. After almost a week at home with COVID... It was a mild case, actually, believe it or not. After almost a month in the hospital, actively dying for most of that, that was not a mild case. After two months at home, recovering, convalescing, it's a weird thing to be back in the pulpit. It's strange to have been preparing a sermon. This one's been percolating in my mind for three months now. Not in our book of Matthew like we have been, and perhaps even maybe a bit self-indulgent in content. Today I want to really address the question of, what has Michael learned? 
Brandon talked to us last week in his candidating weekend to make specifically the point, do not squander the experiences that God gives you. They're given for your good, and they're given so you may learn. Do not squander them, so let us not squander mine. Hopefully you don't have to walk the path that I have done. So starting then, I guess, is really beginning with a question, what do you do when words can't fix a problem? What do you do when the words run out when, well, I guess a better way to say it is there's a multiplication of words, but an emptiness of content, right? We hear them all the time. Oh, it'll be all right. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll, it'll all work out. It'll all come out in the wash. It'll be okay. There's various versions depending on your problem. Oh, don't worry. There's other fish in the sea. Everything will be fine. Or perhaps even worse yet, the Christianese version. I'm sure God will work it out the way you need. I'm sure he'll work it out the way you want. The problem with this The thing I've had to wrestle with over the last three months is that not one of those sentences is necessarily true. There are a couple that aren't necessarily false, but the vast majority of them just aren't true. And in fact, beyond being true, they're empty. What do you do when you know those sentences are a lie? When people say, oh, don't worry, it'll be all right, and you know it's not true. Oh, I'm sure you'll be fine. And you know the nurse is lying. You see, this is a question I've spent a lot of time kind of really having to ponder through as I've had hours and hours and hours in the bed. Many of you know, some don't, I guess. I actually had, like I said, a rather mild case of COVID. It wasn't a big deal. I spent uh, most of my day resting or reading. I go for a walk every day, spend an hour walking through the neighborhood Uh, And on day six, uh, it turned and went from, I'm not really doing that badly, to I'm actively dying in about 36 hours. October 6th was the day that they told me I was going to die. Now, they had told Nikki, at best, I had a 5% chance of survival. I was being transferred from a, a progressive wing in the hospital to the ICU. They were supposed to intubate me along the way. That's a 5% chance of survival. Uh, they didn't tell me that, though. The way it was presented to me and framed out to me was, Sir, we're going to do our best to make you comfortable, but you're going to die. And like I say, the lie doesn't hold. When they look you in the eye to let you know that you're going to die. Right? Those, those empty platitudes, I'm sure it'll be all right. It doesn't work when you know you're not going to walk out of the hospital. The home team doesn't win this time. I spent the better part of a week where every time I closed my eyes... It was my understanding that could or would be the last time I closed them in this place. Like I said, it's a weird thing to know you're going to die. And I don't mean that conceptually, knowing at some point in the ether, at some point in the future, at some point in the 10 or 20 or 50 or 70 years later you're going to die. I mean to know actively this is probably the day I go out.
to know that death is a constant companion. I had this kind of mental image of my head of just death hanging out in the chair next to me, waiting. It's weird to know that every meal could be your last. It's weird to know that every text you send, I was too sick to call, could be my last. It's weird to know that my wife would become a widow, that my children would be without an earthly father, that the church that I love to pastor would be without that pastor. It's a weird thing to know that it won't be all right. To know that it wouldn't work out. To know that there's, there's no solution to this problem. Right? And I make this point abundantly clearly. Uh, my doctors know in certain terms made it very clear to us. There, there's no human way, there's no medical treatment that CMC Pineville or CMC Maine have to heal a person like me. Right? There, there's no medical treatment available to preserve a life that was as sick as mine. There's, there's no hope humanly. <laughs> so it begs the question, what do you, what do, you do now? Right? You're in my shoes, you're in the hospital, uh, suffocating to death day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. How are you supposed to feel about that? What do you think about then? Well, I think the scriptures are clear. Romans twelve twelve. How do, we, how, how do we answer the empty words, the empty, hopeless platitudes, these vain earthly promises? Well, we answer them with Scripture. We go to Romans 12, 12. It's in my living room. It's in my mind. It's in my heart. Rejoice in hope. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Taken out of kind of context of the Bible, when you're dying and know that you are, to have somebody kind of sit down with you and say, your mission is to rejoice in hope. It doesn't necessarily emotionally feel good at first. We like to throw that pity party. We want to have the temper tantrum, right? I'm 42. I have no underlying conditions. I shouldn't be this sick. Even my nurses and doctors are like, we have no idea why. Why you? We have no answer for why you. It's not supposed to be this way. The problem is God's word is 100% right and my feelings are 100% wrong. Rejoice in hope. And if we take this command alone, if we take it kind of isolated from the rest of the scriptures, this is a burden that is too great to bear. A burden that does not stand up in the face of death. A burden that does not stand up in the face of cancer. A burden that does not stand up in the face of trials in our marriages or trials with our children or trials with our jobs. Taken by itself, it's just a heavier weight. Thankfully, it wasn't written in isolation and it wasn't written by itself. In fact, actually, it comes in a very significant part of the book of Romans. 
I started reading chapter 12 and verse 1 because Romans as a book has a pretty easy structure to memorize. Chapters 1 through 11 is kind of the content and 12 through the end is the application. That's why verse uh, chapter 12 verse 1, that therefore is so important. It's the turning point, the hinge. In light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, therefore we are to live in such a way. Okay, so what do the first 11 chapters of Romans say? Well, it's the fullest, richest, most theological explanation of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. Romans chapter 1. Gentiles sin. That's most of us in here. Not all, but most. Chapter 2, Jews sin. Well, um, well, that's both categories. <laughs> in Jew and Gentile. Chapter 3, everybody sins. All have fallen short of God's glory. All stand condemned. And oh yeah, by the way, the consequence of that sin is God's eternal wrath. Which is a problem. Chapter 4, though, is where it begins to change tone. Uh, our sin established in chapters 1, 2, and 3 suddenly kind of comes alive in chapter 4 in saying, look, if there is going to be salvation, it can't come from you. It has to come from heaven. Chapter 5, Jesus is our salvation. He is the one who justifies us before the Father. Chapter 6, Jesus is our salvation. Therefore, we have union with him. And chapter 8, Jesus is our salvation. So Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. That's the backdrop of Romans chapter 12. That's the foundation that Romans chapter 12 sits on, is that nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing inside creation. It's the foundation that we must have as we go to apply. Verse 12, rejoice in hope. How do I rejoice in hope? I can only do that if I have in the back of my mind the the, the backdrop to all of it. That nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. COVID can't. Hospital negligence can't. An overwhelming darkness that's debilitating and crippling to the mind and heart cannot separate you from the love of God. So how do you rejoice in the midst of difficulty? How do you have hope when there is no light at all? How do you rejoice when there seems so little to rejoice in? Is it our hope that everything's going to be okay? No. The older I get, the more I realize it very rarely is. Is our hope that everything will work out in the end? Well, I mean, there is a biblical truth there, but not the right one. Now, our, our hope is this. The Lord is faithful to keep his promises. 
He's faithful to keep his promises. Those promises made throughout the entirety of this book hold true in every time, in every place, in every hospital room, in every car ride, in every classroom, in every bedroom, in every house. His promises are always true. In fact, actually, Paul in another book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians, even makes the point that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus is the yes and the amen to the promises of God. There is no ultimate promise that he's not ultimately fulfilling in some fashion. That's why we read Isaiah 9 and then John 1. I know we've already read it uh, this season, and we're going to read it again, uh, Lessons and Carols. But uh, Isaiah 9 paints this picture of a coming king. A coming king that's going to rule and reign in a way that is marvelous and glorious. And John 1 explains that Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of those promises. When the second person of the Godhead, second person of the Trinity, stepped inside time and space. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, actually, God describes himself in this language with great frequency. He says that he is the covenant-keeping God. Some of us are not quite as familiar with that term, covenant, and it's uh, the most serious, the most intense, the, the most holy and life and death oriented commitment that could possibly be made. Right? One of the kind of famous writers on this calls it a bond in blood, divinely administered. God promises upon his own name that he will keep his promises. And he does so in Christ. So how do we rejoice in hope when you're in the midst of the darkness, when there is no way out, when there is no hope, when there's nothing to hope in? Uh, The ultimate answer is an intentional, all-encompassing commitment to the belief that the Lord always keeps his promises. Friends, I, I cannot stress for you stress to you the importance of making this commitment in the good times. When you're happy, when life is calm and quiet, maybe it never is for you. Mine has a lot of adventure. To make the intentional, all-encompassing commitment to the belief that the Lord always keeps his promises. He's never once violated them. He never once will. There is no circumstance I can manage to get myself into where he cannot or will not keep his promises. Which gives us a freedom as Christians to deal with difficulty in a different fashion, to deal with the hard things in a different way. We don't have to offer these trite meaningless comments like, I'm sure it'll be fine. You'll be okay. No, I might not, actually. Thank you very much. I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. Oh, the Lord loves you. He doesn't want you to hurt. 
My friends, every one of those sentences, when I hear Christians say them, it, it makes me cringe even before this. Because we're putting words into God's mouth that he himself has not said. Brandon made this point last week, right? Sometimes the Lord uses great difficulty for great good. He, he designs pain to be part of our healing process. In fact, actually, I would say, kind of as a first point of application here, one of the great tasks that the church should be entrusted with is learning the promises of God. To know what they are. So that when you're in that situation where you know your your death is impending, where you know it could be any moment, so you know what to think. So that Romans 8, 28 can come to mind. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, So it will work out, I guess. But not the way I perhaps want. Philippians 1. Paul actually addresses a very similar situation. He is expecting his own impending death. Now, his is not COVID. It's not the flu. Not a head cold, I guess, which it could have been for him. That time and space. No, for him it was a a Roman guard. He was in prison. And interestingly, how does he process it? He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Oh, it's going to work out in the end. I'm going to be delivered. We're like, oh, yay, Paul's going to get out of prison. Let me finish the sentence. It will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's going to be delivered. It might just be in his murder. This is why these promises are so important to have fixed in our mind, because we have the wrong categories as normal humans, right? Our normal categories are Amer- as Americans are, if it hurts, it's bad. If it feels good, it's good. And then we have that inconvenient moment where we meet with our doctor for our yearly checkup, and he has to remind us we oftentimes have our categories wrong. Donuts make me feel good. They're not great for my blood pressure. They're not great for my cholesterol. The next verse is the one that we remember. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. You see, friends, part of our challenge here is we think through rejoicing and hope. It's, it's learning to have biblical categories. So many of us hope in the wrong things. We hope that the pain is going to go away. Instead of hoping that the Lord 
will use it. You realize in my circumstance, it could have been the Lord's good pleasure and good care to take me home to heaven. In fact, actually, according to his promise in Philippians 1, verse 21, it would have been better for me to go. There's perhaps no person to have more compassion on in the scriptures than poor Lazarus. Right? Three days in glory and then have to get yanked back to this mess. Had the Lord taken me home, you need to hear this. He would have still loved me. He still would have loved my wife. He still would have loved my children. And he still would have loved you all. In fact, actually, had he taken me home, all the tears that would have been cried, maybe none, (laughs) he would have been perfectly keeping every one of his promises to every one of you. It would have hurt. And he would still be good to you. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To have this understanding of God's promises is the most important protection for the darkest of nights. I I cannot impress upon you how sick I was. Again, I mean, it was enough that they, they knew I wasn't going to make it because it's not possible. I think the first moment where it began to click in my head was when the nurses at CMC Pineville offered to euthanize me. Right? Some of you know this part of the story, some don't. I was so sick they offered me a way out of the pain. Right? We know you're hurting. I'm suffocating to death. Literally suffocating to death. Every breath was a gasp to stay alive. And all it would have taken was a little bit of morphine to take the pain away and to slow the breathing. And I would have been gone. What guards your mind when you're offered the easy way out? What guards your heart when you're confronted with the reality of pain and struggle? Friends, again, I, I know John Piper said that the great ethic of the American culture is the avoidance of pain. We cut corners at every given opportunity if we can get out of pain. And I know I've been a pastor long enough to know this. It's not just my struggle, it's yours too. That when given the opportunity to choose the easy way that's painless or the hard way that hurts, more often than not, we'll take the easy way out, won't we? Instead, we're called to read Joyce in hope. I understand some of you learn best by observation. It makes it easiest for you to understand when you see it. 
And I would lovingly say, you saw this. If you want to know what this looks like, all you needed to do was look at Nikki. Right? She did this perfectly. Having the promises of God to shape her emotions in the midst of great turmoil. The promises form the foundation, but interestingly, that doesn't instantly make the problems go away. Just because I have in my mind that the Lord loves me and that suffocating to death can't take that away from me, and just because I know that the Lord has designed this for my good, it doesn't make the problems go away. I spent almost a week in a progressive unit, then almost a week in the ICU. I stabilized a bet. It unfortunately did not take away the pneumonia. It didn't make my lungs start working again. It didn't take away the constant suffocating. By best guess, friends, I think I had lost more than 90% of my lung function. I spent my days in the hospital with a mixture of suffocating punctuated by debilitating panic. The best way I can describe it is, is imagine the last time you did really good exercise. Now, for some of you, as you go to the gym, some of you that's running, some of you that's the stairs, fair enough. I, I'm, I'm not mad at you now, I get that. But the last time you did really good exercise, that kind that kind of makes you sweat, that you, you, you're winded and you're, you're gasping and you take that deep breath to recover and there's nothing there. The lungs just wouldn't open up. There, there was no air to breathe in. So it was that constant feeling of exertion with no ability to get air in. It's the breathing version of that dream you used to have when you were a kid, the one where you dreamed you were constantly falling but never actually hit the bottom. It's that constant feeling of suffocation but with no ability to either die or not die. The ability to breathe or not breathe. God's promises were faithful to me. He was caring for me. But the breathing problems didn't go away. And I've been, again, pastor here long enough to know I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one with health problems. I know we have folks in here with work problems, marriage problems, sibling problems, parent problems, school problems, all of the problems that we can possibly conceive of. We have them. So how do I deal with my problems in light of God's promises? Well, interestingly, going quickly here, we're called to be patient in tribulation. The word that Paul uses here, patience, it's translated as patience, but interestingly, most of the other times it's translated, it's to remain behind. So like if, if the whole group of people go off running away and you say, well, I'll stay behind, that's the word that's used. It's the opposite of running away. Remember how I said our great ethic is we avoid pain at all costs, we run away from it at all costs. Interestingly, what does God say here? Rejoice in hope, be patient, remain in tribulation. 
Endure, hold out, stand firm, bear up, put up with, undergo, remain, stay behind. All the ways that word is translated. How do I endure, bear, put up with, undergo, remain? How do I tarry in my suffering? This is, I think, a beautiful thing and why these verses are arranged that they are is the answer is an application of the first point. If I'm called to rejoice in the hope of God's promises, the only way I can be patient in tribulation is if I get the first part. Because it means that when I'm sitting in the hospital room suffocating to death, It protects my mind because you have the question, is God able to heal me? Yeah. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2, he made the earth by the word of his power. He's Lord over heaven and earth. John 1, we got to see that Jesus is the agent of creation. It's not ability. He's able to heal me if he wants to. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he's like, I had enough with that guy. He has tried my patience too much. And friends, I have tried his patience, that's for sure. But Romans 8's already told us that nothing can separate me from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus, even me being dumb. So it's not his love. He, he's powerful enough. He's loving enough. Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe it's not an issue of, of love. Maybe he just doesn't want to help. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. This is the, the part. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. That's, I think an element a lot of times we forget. The Lord doesn't love us miserably. He loves us with delight. His loving affection for his people is one of joy. Established before the foundation of the world. He doesn't love us because we're redeemed in Christ. He doesn't love us because in our standing with him, we finally are not sinning as much as we used to. He loved us before the foundation of the world. That's why he sent his son. He delights in loving us. Then what is it? Well, patience comes through the understanding That this circumstance is the fulfillment of his promises to me. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is a truth that will change your world when you're suffering, if you understand it. To learn that whatever misery you are in is a misery that is tailor-made to be specifically for your good. And were you to get out of that misery, per se, too early, it would be to your harm. 
So for those of you that are struggling with health problems, I relate. They're for our good. God designed them specifically for us. I don't know how and I don't know why and I'm not going to pretend like I, I know that. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us so that we can obey. I, I don't know why he's tailor-made it this way for me, but he has. For those of you with work problems, he's tailor-made that for your sanctification. For those of you with marriage problems, he's tailor-made that for your good. Boy, that puts a little different spin on it, doesn't it? The Lord specifically has given me this for my good. Students, last week of the semester is your, ah, and exams and things like that. The Lord has made them for your good. In fact, actually, my COVID experience was not just for my good, it was for my family's good, it was for all of our good, and I can attest to this already in some fashion, right? I now know what it feels like to be ready to die. I know what it's like to have to face my own death. I can honestly say, by God's mercy, I was not afraid then, and I'm not afraid now. I'm not afraid of death. I would not have been able to say that six months ago, because I wouldn't have known. I know now. When it's my time to go, I'm ready to go. It puts it in a different perspective when you know that this specific situation is designed to help you and to strengthen you and to equip you and to build you up and to make you look like Jesus. You don't have to run from it when you know that it's God's good gift for you. In fact, actually, it gives you the freedom to think about your suffering like an athlete that endures all sorts of difficulties in order to be victorious. The Lord knows that we're cowards. The Lord knows that we're weak. He knows we will never train ourselves well enough. So he gives us difficulties bigger than what we ever could have thought we could have faced. So that we would look like Christ. Now, does that mean that you just have to kind of sit there, twiddle your thumbs, and just wait it out? Well, no, I I love, again, the the kind of trifecta here. Rejoice in hope. This is in the promises of God. Be patient in tribulation. You don't have to run from it. You don't have to grumble. You don't have to complain. You can rest in the knowledge that God has designed this for your good. How do I get out of it? Well, be constant in prayer. How do we change things? Well, we be constant in prayer. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to really preach this part of the sermon. And the reality of this is because you've preached it for the last three months. You've preached it to my wife. You've preached it to my children. And you've preached it to me. To be constant in prayer. Now, I've hinted at this already, and some I've talked to know this directly, that I've already at this point in my life experienced two miracles in the last three months connected to my health. One, that I didn't die. That's a miracle. There's, there's no medical explanation for how I am still here, right? If A, I'm dying of COVID, B, I'm surviving, there is no human line that connects those. The only is a divine line that the Lord has shown kindness to do. In fact, actually, the day I left the ICU, uh, I had a new nurse She came to get me kind of cleaned up and squared away to transfer, and after she got me cleaned up and ready, I sat down on the bed and was resting, recovering, still suffocating to death. She walks over to my chair in my room and proceeds to weep for like 15 minutes, and asking her like, are you okay? I mean, 
I'm the patient in the ICU, but we can do this now. I'm not really, I'm not playing with a full brain right now. I can barely breathe enough to say anything, but all right, well, pastor, let's do this. You okay? Her response was when I think I, at the second point, I began to understand how bad it was. She said, no, I'm not okay because I've never seen someone as sick as you survive. I watched so many people come into this ICU. I've been doing it now for two years, and they all die. I've never seen someone walk out. I don't know what to do with a survivor. And you're certainly not, I, I was certainly on the sicker end of the spectrum. There's no explanation for how I didn't die other than God's people were constant in prayer. Miracle number two is my recovery. I can show you the x-rays later. I've enjoyed showing those to delight in God's mercy. Uh, I shouldn't have lungs that are functioning. It shouldn't be possible. I, I should be in line for a lung transplant, and instead, here I am preaching. I mean, I have oxygen here in case I had an emergency. This shouldn't be possible. I ran up and down the stairs four or five times this morning because I was forgetting things because my alarm didn't go off and I'm out of routine. That's not possible. It shouldn't be happening. The reality of the matter is this, that prayers offered by the people of God, thousands upon thousands of the people of God, on multiple continents, in multiple time zones, in multiple countries and denominations and churches. Friends, the Lord has heard your prayer. And whereas it would have been my gain to go home, it has been to the benefit of my family and my church and my friends that I remain And the Lord has heard your prayer. I'm going to be honest, you all prayed faithfully, and I I can never say thank you enough. I was telling even somebody last night, when I say thank you, it feels like, those are the words I say when somebody passes me the salt and pepper shaker. I also say thank you for praying, but they mean so much more. But I fully understand the reason I'm alive is because you prayed. There's no other explanation. There's no medical explanation. There's no human explanation. I shouldn't, and in fact, even couldn't be here apart from that. And to be honest, had the Lord taken me home, he still would have been answering your prayers and keeping his promises and showing kindness to me. But in this case, it was his kindness to keep me alive. And I will say this, thank you for teaching me how to pray. I think that's perhaps the part that you don't realize. It's not just that you prayed for me and kept me alive, but you taught me what prayer looked like. I can't tell you the number of people that came to me and said, I I couldn't sleep. And so I lifted you before the throne of grace. I couldn't sleep. It's dominated my thinking. You've been in my mind constantly. I find myself overcome with tears, and so I go to the Lord. I don't even know what to... I've prayed more for you than any other person I've ever prayed for, and I say, thank you for teaching me how to pray. I don't think I've ever seen prayer like that before. 
Thank you for preaching to me. I would very quickly make a bit of application, and I'm running long, and I, ooh, I am really long. Don't really care, but I'm really long. <clears throat> First, I would say, please don't stop praying. Pray for me like that. Yeah. Pray for my preaching. Pray for the ministry of the church. Don't stop praying, but please continue. So take other topics in the kingdom of God. And I'll end with very briefly just two applications that I should have been preaching about 20 minutes ago, but again, don't care. First is this. I think the thing that probably perhaps hit home to me the most at 42 is that um, I know we talk about this often kind of in the ether and in concept, but friends, you're going to die. And you very likely will not know that it's coming. It was a weird thing for me to have to process that. I've always been mostly healthy, haven't had any kind of major medical problems yet. I never saw my death coming. And the reality of the matter is, I didn't die, thank the Lord, but you very likely might not see yours coming either. And the big reality is that you need to be ready for it now, not then. If you wait till you're lying in a hospital bed with COVID to make your choices, friends, you've waited too late. Because the vast majority of us will probably not get that opportunity. You need to be ready now. And then lastly, the challenge is this. To marvel at the beauty of what God has done. This whole situation is one of those that there is no explanation for humanly. And I love how... You know, the substantial part of the Old Testament is just going back and telling the old story again to remind us of the marvels of God. Might it be this is part of the story of this church that we would marvel at who God is together forever. Amen and amen. Father, we do give you great praise. We thank you. May your word be life to us even now. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.